Welcome to We The Podcast, the show about how people outside the billionaire and millionaire class, you know, most of us, engage the economy. p.m. There really isn't a better time, is there? Or how about add to that the weekend? How about the eight-hour day, or minimum wage, and a whole bunch of other stuff? You know, it wasn't always like that. Working people didn't always have these kind of things that they could rely on for a little bit better life. For decades, millions of Americans worked around the clock in the worst conditions imaginable. Their workplaces were dangerous and infested with disease. It was common for people to lose fingers and toes and limbs or even their lives. And no matter what they did, they could never seem to provide enough for their families or never saved enough, quite enough for an emergency or retirement. But all of that changed with the New Deal. Every single American has felt the benefits of the New Deal some more than others, but everyone from low-income folks to working families to seniors, people of all colors and cultures and faiths, the New Deal has been the difference between security and opportunity, and on the other hand, poverty and lack of any kind of rights. Whether it's Social Security with its benefits for older Americans or people with disabilities or people who have parents who died, survivor benefits, or whether it's unemployment insurance or just basic labor laws, the New Deal made life a little bit easier for working people. A lot of credit goes to Franklin Roosevelt, of course. But wait a minute, did he do it by himself? Of course not. It's a little known fact nowadays that the New Deal would not have been as effective if it were not for one of FDR's closest friends and advisors, the first female cabinet secretary, Secretary of Labor, Frances Perkins. You know, we wouldn't even have a 40-hour work week or minimum wage or workers' compensation or Social Security or unemployment insurance benefits, but for Frances Perkins. But how many people know who Frances Perkins is? This critically important advocate for the working man and woman of America, but whose name is not known nearly well enough. You know, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Kristen Downey. She's the author of The Woman Behind the New Deal. This is a great book about the life of Frances Perkins. Kristen Downey was kind enough to talk about what motivated the first female Secretary of Labor to transform how all Americans interact with their economy and who made things a little bit better for the people who pound nails the people who drive trucks and in those days even horses, the people who wash, the people who do the tough jobs that make America work every single day. You know, the people who, if they go on strike, things stop happening. I'm not talking about the CEOs. I'm talking about the workaday folks, the real America that makes this country work.
Kristen, do you mind talking about what inspired you to delve into the life of the first woman Secretary of Labor in the United States, the New Deal Secretary of Labor, Frances Perkins? Well, I, I was a reporter at the Washington Post for 20 years. And during those years, we, you know, you spend a lot of time as, as a newspaper reporter looking at what goes wrong. And I became more and more fascinated at looking at examples in history where things went right. And uh, when we look back and we had different issues that came up, we were talking about Social Security or uh, the minimum wage or unemployment compensation. When, you would, when I would be doing my research, there'd always be a place where I would give that little paragraph of information, what's the background, what's this program, where'd that come from? And I realized that people again and again kept saying this was something that a woman named Frances Perkins had done. And I had no idea who she was, and nobody else did either. So um, I started to sort of become almost like a detective, trying to find out where she was, where she'd worked, and how she'd gotten so much done. Who is Frances Perkins? <laughs> well, she was a, a middle-class girl from Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, an old a family, an old pioneer stock family, um, with a long sense of tradition and responsibility for the country. Um, but during the years she grew up, it was um, she was born in 1880. It was a time of a, a lot of change. It was also a time that there was a really growing gap between the rich and the poor. Um, that's when we see really sort of the 1% problem start to emerge in the United States in a really big way around that time. The Gilded Age. The Gilded Age, of in, course, in, right. In, uh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, it's like a, the Great Gatsby type time of yes, our country. When you have extreme wealth and extreme poverty existing very close at hand to one another. Sure. And she became convinced this was really an unjust situation and things had to be done to try to even the playing field for the American people. And she, uh, early in our life, started to think about what would be some of the programs that could really make a difference. And those are some of the things now which she succeeded in doing, which are our basic social safety net today. Well, that's what I want to ask you. I mean, here we are, 2016, benefiting from the work of this noble woman who so many of us don't even know who she is. What has Frances Perkins done for us sitting here in 2016? Well, I think, of course, you know, one of the things I like to do when I give a talk is I'll often start by saying, how many of you know who Frances Perkins is? And everybody says, nobody. <laughs> no, one, no one knows. Nobody raises their hand. Then I say, how many of you know a person on Social Security? Hmm. Then I say, how many people know two people on Social Security? And then so on and so forth. The, basically, the fact is, a really large percentage of our population is, in, is financially dependent on Social Security. It's our most important social safety program. Right. It's also one of our most popular social safety programs. And that would not exist if Frances Perkins hadn't come along and yeah. made it happen. And it's not just seniors, is it? No, it's also children. Uh, orphan children um, get money for Social Security. Um, also, it's also a source of disability payments. So a lot of people who um, become ill later in life uh, after some years of working are able to retire on Social Security disability. So it takes care of the young, the aging, and the ill. Well, you know, um, I think the 1920s and 30s were not a time when women uh, were easily able to rise to the top of their profession. Yet some, some kind of way, Frances Perkins was able to kick that glass ceiling down. Yeah, everything that she did was sort of just against the odds. 
um, you know, first of all, I started by saying she was from a middle-class family. Well, it's really kind of interesting because she pretended to be a little more upper crust than all that. Um, she was really good at putting on protective coloration to help herself succeed. But she really came from a middle-class family. That in itself is really kind of unusual in the, in the upper sphere of politics. And of course, it was really unusual that she was a woman. Um, uh, at that time, um, only about 5% of American women went to college. She was a college graduate and she had a master's degree. Um, and of course she was the first, then she became the first woman to hold high office officially as industrial commissioner of the state of New York. And then she became the first female secretary of labor, which was breaking a very big glass ceiling. Absolutely, so you know, uh, Frances Perkins comes to leadership in our nation at a tough time, you know, we all know October 1929, stock market crashes, unemployment goes up, uh, foreclosures sort of skyrocket, and uh, we see uh, the emergence of somebody who was actually an upper crust New Yorker, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's come into office after Hubert Hoover sort of just sort of fumbles along and ignores and is sort of a free market fundamentalist. Right. Um, Francis Perkins was sort of sympathetic to Hoover because he was sort of the wrong man in the wrong place. Um, she felt like what had the, the conditions that had caused the depression hadn't just been the stock market crash. They'd been things that were a long time coming. Mm. Um, uh, mechanization meant that a lot of workers had lost their jobs. Um, there'd been a very big increase of immigration, which meant that wages had fallen. Um, you, the unions were under attack, and wages were falling. Um, one of the reasons that unemployment skyrocketed so fast is that men didn't have the solid employment they had previously had, and their uh, wives and children were, began to be put to work at increasing numbers. So she felt like the depression had not was not just a single event, but a series of big economic issues that needed to be uh, confronted in a big way. One of them was to look at the fact that unemployment is a cyclical phenomena. Um, we have booms and busts in our economy. When we have booms, everybody's employed. When we have busts, a lot of people lose their jobs. If you could develop an insurance system that would give people some income um, during that time, um, that would help tide, tide them over to the next period. So I mentioned first Social Security, but now I'd like to talk about unemployment insurance. Right. Imagine, think of how important unemployment insurance was for the United States in 2000 eight and 2009. Yep. Really, that was the main mechanism we used to tide people over. We let people expand to 52 weeks of unemployment insurance, and that made a huge difference for a lot of families. Um, now, we have a lot of big structural economic problems here where a lot of people are still are feeling a lot of pain, but uh, Social Security unemployment insurance become two of the main ways that uh, our system helps people survive those bad times. Kristen, tell me this, um, what role did Francis Perkins play in the New Deal? Every school kid learns about the New Deal. Uh -huh. To what degree do we, uh, did she shape the New Deal? Uh, uh, well, I, I really came to think that in a lot of ways she was the architect of the New Deal. Um, would she have been able to do it without FDR? No. The personal power, the magnetism, the charisma, the smarts he had. He made things happen, but she was the one who would establish the architecture of a plan and figure out how it could function best. She'd get all the ducks in a row so that it could happen, and then he could come in and, with a big flourish, sign it into law. Well, I want to ask you about those ducks in a row, <laughs> but before I do, 
I want to ask you this. How did she get the trust and the confidence of uh, Upper Cross, you know, actually kind of a rich guy like uh, FDR? Well, she had known him for a very long time. Um, she first met him in 1910. So when he became president and he was elected president in 1932, they'd already known each other for 22 years. Mm -hmm. um, he'd been the governor of New York. And I mentioned that she was the industrial commissioner. She was first the industrial uh, in the industrial commission with his predecessor, Al Smith. Sure. So she looks kind of like an old hand in government when he was more of a newbie. Sure. So he was a person that she could he could entirely depend on. So the trust was there. The trust was there, and I think one of the things that's very interesting about Frances Perkins that we don't that we don't talk very much about in ordinary life is the very great friendship they had. It was a real friendship. He could absolutely trust her and she knew that he, she could say whatever she needed to tell him mm -hmm. about what she believed needed to be done. Right. Um, you know, we talk about a lot of the kinds of relationships between men and women, but we don't often talk about really effective, important friendships. Well, you know, uh, politics is so much built on relationships, isn't it? So let's talk about these ducks that you were talking about. Architect of the New Deal. Kind of... Uh, Map out a little bit of what she might have been thinking when she, when the country was facing such a difficult economic times. Well, she came to office with already a list in mind of what she wanted to get accomplished. And so she wasn't only just reacting to crises. She had ideas in mind, and then she looked for opportunities that would allow her to push through her ideas. So, for example, when the Great Depression hit, nobody everyone lost their jobs. Nobody could afford to buy things. This was a really great opportunity to talk about consumer buying power. Right. If people could afford to buy things, they would buy things and that would boost production, that would bring employment back. What's the basis of consumer buying power? The minimum wage. Right. And then this is yet another cornerstone of Frances Perkins' work is uh, she was a very great advocate for a minimum wage. And it happened under the Fair Labor Standards Act during her tenure as Secretary of Labor. She was disappointed because she wanted it to be a real living wage, and that didn't happen. Um, but at least we got what we have, and a lot of people benefit from the, to the fact today that a minimum wage exists. Well, let me tell you, listeners of We The Podcast are familiar with the Fair Labor Standards Act. It is in force and effect today, and there have been a number of times where members of the Progressive Caucus offered amendments to appropriation bills to say that if a contractor or vendor with the U.S. government does not abide by the Fair Labor Standards Act, that that would be a demerit in terms of them winning contracting contract opportunities using the procurement power of the federal government. So Francis well, Perkins that, at work that, again. That, yeah, Francis Perkins at work again. That's exactly the strategy that she'd recommend, and she'd be really glad that the people that have... Uh, come along behind her have seen this as a good tool too because if the government can do it and operate with it successfully then private enterprise can also. Did she have a sense that the, the federal government could be sort of a leader in the area of employment practices? Not that the federal government would employ everybody but that uh, could help lead a high road economy that the private sector could follow? Absolutely. She was uh, very committed to a uh, diverse workforce, integrated workforce. The Labor Department itself was, immigrated, was uh, integrated. Wow, that's, uh, a, that's ahead of its time as well. Yes. 
Um, and she didn't do a lot of these things in a way to draw attention to herself. She did them quietly. She just did it. Just did it. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, some people, you know, might observe that uh, that the benefits of the New Deal were not necessarily universally shared by, say, African Americans who were heavily involved in agricultural production and in domestic housework. Yes. Those are exceptions to some of our laws. That's right. And that was part of the reason that Frances Perkins was unhappy with the Fair Labor Standards Act. Right. She felt like it didn't go as far as it should have gone and protect as many people as it should have. Uh, on the other hand, she would present herself with this question, um, should I do something for some or nothing for everybody? And she believed you were always better to try to get half a loaf than none at all. And so what ended up happening is um, that a lot of people got more than they had, um, and in time it presents the opportunity for others to build on it. Well, I quite agree that half of something beats all of nothing. <laughs> How about that? Well, well, let me let me say this to you about the New Deal as well. I mean, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, actually took on took on the New Deal a little bit and struck down some key provisions. Right. How did Francis Perkins see that? Uh, there was a very conservative Supreme Court at that time, and they were really opposed to a lot of these new uh, these new laws that were being introduced: uh, Social Security, unemployment insurance. Uh, uh, these were things that were considered shocking, outrageous, so left-wing that, that before the Roosevelt administration came in, uh, talking about unemployment insurance was a laugh line. You know, like, ha, 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 here's something that's totally impossible and could never happen. Sure. Um, but she believed that it was possible to, uh, to, to make things happen and to change opinions. Um, and so what she did is work privately meeting with Supreme Court justices and their wives and talk to them about issues at hand, talk to them about the backgrounds of some of these issues. Um, around this time, uh, President Roosevelt became very frustrated with the slow pace of this process, though. Um, she believed that people had to be made to come to decisions on their own at their own time, that you took advantage of, of opportunities, but that you also tried to convince people gradually rather than force them. And here FDR did something that caused him to have a lot of trouble, and that was that he tried to force the justices to change their mind by um, saying he was going to add a lot more justices to the court in a, in a, in a, in a measure that was called court packing, and that was wildly unpopular. Um, in fact, what ended up happening soon after is some of the people that Francis Perkins had been speaking to regularly did come to shift their opinions in time about how to interpret constitutional law, and that allowed uh, these laws to fully go into effect and to stay into effect even today. You know, we, we live with the New Deal clearly from the 30s right on up into our present day, but I think sometimes somewhere in the 60s, maybe 70s, 80s, somewhere in the last 30 years or so, our appreciation as a nation for what the New Deal brought us maybe waned a little bit. Right. Well, they seemed like old fuddy-duddies to the people in the 60s. Mm -hmm. The way they looked, the way they dressed, they were like old, weird people. You know? <laughs> and people wanted to be cool and hip in the 60s and the sure. 70s. They were trying to be, you know, the new thing. And so they didn't really, and, and they also thought that there'd been so many achievements that they thought um, that it was easy to make social progress. Right. They didn't 
appreciate the difficulty of what the New Dealers had taken on. And only in their old age have some of the people who were part of the, um, uh, the, the 60s programs realized how amazing it was what the New Dealers did achieve. Sure. Um, and I think people are turning back to them with a new interest for how they actually got things done. And Frances Perkins has one of, been one of the people that's gotten a whole lot of attention recently because of her accomplishments. Well, let me just ask you this as we wrap up, and I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today and with the podcast. You know, uh, in the 1980s, Reagan gets elected, and it's not so much that people look at New Deal programs as quaint, or don't appreciate the difficulty to get them through. Actually, what happens is there's this re-emergence of what I call free market fundamentalism and direct challenges to the promises of the New Deal. Yes. What, what do you think Francis Perkins would take would be on all this? Well, one of the things that was really interesting about Frances Perkins is she recognizes the cyclical nature mm. of how things happen, things wax and wane. And she felt like what you had to happen was steady, persistent pressure and a recognition that things don't always happen as fast as you want them to, but that they do change in time. Um, I think she would have been uh, dismayed by some of the interpretations during the Reagan administration of the policies. I'm sure she would be appalled by some of the attacks that have happened on Social Security um, because the bottom line about Social Security is it's been an enormously successful program. It's enormously popular. And the one thing that Americans are pretty much uh, in agreement on is that they don't want their Social Security messed with. Um, it's, it's a remarkably popular program. And I think we all know people that would be in dire poverty without Social Security. Um, I think she would be dismayed that people on the Democrat side didn't push back harder when the criticism of Social Security began, mm -hmm. um, that it, almost immediately they wanted to act like they were going to cooperate and negotiate over possible cuts to Social Security. The bottom line is the average Social Security recipient gets about $1,200 or $1,300 a month. It's right. a very minimal way to live, but it's the difference between some degree of of, of comfort and destitution. That's right. Um, so I think she'd be disappointed that the Democrats hadn't defended uh, Social Security more strongly. How would you describe the spirit of Frances Perkins? In her senior year at College of Mount Holyoke, she was class president, and she took as her motto uh, a line from the Bible, be steadfast. Well, all right. Hey, from We The Podcast, so honored to have you on, uh, Kristen Downey, and thank you for your tremendous contribution to our understanding of real heroes. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Francis Perkins knew the value of life. Human beings weren't meant to work for pennies until exhaustion. We owe so much to this tremendous woman. Whether it's the weekend or grandma's social security check or ending child labor, these accomplishments are the result of years of sacrifice from a number of people, and one in particular, Francis Perkins. We should remember her name and hold on to her as one of America's great leaders. 
for We The Podcast. This is Keith Ellison, and I'll see you next time. Do me a favor, folks. Head on over to We The Podcast page on iTunes and rate review and subscribe to we the podcast this episode of we the podcast was produced by carol wayman isaiah kirshner breen brett morrow and sound work was done by jamie long